morning. It's good to be back with you. I see many familiar faces, a few I don't recognize. I'm Jordan Begley. This is my wife, Brooke, and my kids. Uh, we're members at Bethany Baptist out in Alberton. So um, thankful for our growing friendship as churches, working together. I know that Dallas's uh, ministry and Friendship has meant a lot to Lucas Page, our pastor. I think he's been here somewhat recently. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, it's on page 861 in the Pew Bible in front of you. 861. stand when you read God's word for the scripture. Yeah, let's stand. Should have asked that. Luke chapter 5, we begin reading in verse 27. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thank you. You can be seated. This text this morning probably is not going to tell you something new or that you haven't heard. Something you might not even, that you would confess as true with your own mouth. And that you, I hope, are trusting in this morning. That Christ Jesus came to save sinners. But that doesn't mean you don't need to hear it again this morning. It's possible even that you see others um, and you can imagine God loves them. That he would save them and have mercy on them. But you question at times that he would have mercy on you. You know the depths of your own sinfulness. And maybe he wouldn't have mercy on you. Even as we gather each Sunday, we sing and rehearse the gospel um, again, we, we don't rush past our sin. We stop. We look deep in our own heart, realize the depth of our own depravity, the worst of our own hearts. But yet, every Sunday, we look again at the God of Scripture. Who is He like? How does He receive sinners? What hope does this sinner have that He might Welcome me. So we come to this passage in Luke chapter 5. Jesus has uh, begun his public ministry with many miracles. And in the previous passage, um, he continues healing. He heals a quadriplegic man. But he does something different this time. Right before he heals him, he does something new. He pronounces, you're forgiven. 
He gives forgiveness, spiritual restoration, and then he heals him. Now, if he, if he had just said, you're forgiven, and walked out, everyone, they'd probably roll their eyes like, yeah, I bet, I bet he was. But when the paralyzed man picks his bed up and strolls out, Jesus said he did it this way, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So God only can forgive sins. He is the only one that can forgive your sins. And yet somehow this man who just raised a quadriplegic, he has authority to forgive. As, as this appointed judge of all the earth who will either acquit you or condemn you, where does he go first? What is the next story? I hope you can see there is purpose and intent with every verse of your Bible, what order it is in. God is putting this here for us to put something on display about who he is and how he welcomes sinners. In, in the uh, parallel passage in Mark, it's almost like God is doing this on a platform too, not just for us, but to the people standing around. It said that all the crowd was coming to him right here. And in this previous passage in, in Luke, it says that the Pharisees and teachers had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. So a huge crowd comes, and God is putting on display who he is. And in another sense, this was recorded. Of all that Jesus did, this is in your lap this morning. God wants you to know this about who he is. What he does with this authority to forgive sins in the person of his son. So what is he displaying? I see, I'm going to get five main things I see that Jesus is telling us in this text. First, Jesus calls unworthy, corrupted, morally bankrupt, ruined sinners to follow him. The text circles kind of around what kind of person Jesus calls. Verse 27, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Is a real man, his real name, his name's Levi. It's also, this is Matthew, the disciple Matthew. Yeah, the kind of person, a tax collector, um, it would have a jaw-dropping effect when all these, this crowd sees the person he first goes to and says, follow me. This is not the first, that, the first type of person people would have expected. But it is not by accident. Jesus is purposeful, goes straight to a tax booth and calls Matthew. Jesus who upholds the world by his word. He's so purposed to call this particular man on this day right where he's sitting in a tax booth. Now it we cannot really grasp what the text is conveying if we don't understand who a tax collector is. I don't want you to think 
uh, an IRS agent. This is not what should come to your mind about our taxes. There's a hint in verse 30 how, how much hatred and disgust uh, would be in someone's mind for this kind of person. In, in the verse 30, the Pharisees and scribes ask, why do you eat, with, eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see, there are, there are the regular lawbreakers, there are sinners, and there are tax collectors. They are on a whole different level. They are hated. There is no lower rung of morality and life than a tax collector for this crowd that was working. Now, uh, in this time, Jews had their own taxes. So just that the tax collector, that, that's not uh, why he is evil. God instituted taxes in the Old Testament. If you read through it, God himself had collecting of taxes. But this point in history, the Jews were a oppressed, occupied people by the Romans. So the Romans are taking taxes, and this isn't our kind of taxes that are used for common good of uh, building roads and schools for our good. This is taken from the Jews to fill the coffers of their very own oppressors. Worse than this, the Romans went and found Jews that were willing to do the stealing, to do the tax collecting. Matthew is a Jew. He would be considered a turncoat. You have gone to the enemies and are bringing in money to them, to our oppressors. Even worse than that, tax collectors made their money by taking more than was due. They would take exorbitant prices. They would double or triple, and the Jews knew this. Tax collectors walked and prayed around in their wealthy, lavish lifestyles, often being harsh with records of beating and oppressing their own kinsmen. They were hated. Think of, just consider what it meant to be a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector. You had been given you were part of the covenant people of God. You were not ignorant of the true God. You had his laws. You had Moses and the prophets. You had the temple, the worship of the true God. And yet given that the path and the law of the Lord to work honestly, to supply your own needs of your family and honor and dignity, you chose crookedness, deceit, love of money over love of neighbor. Given the path to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You chose to reject Him, His covenant. The Jews saw tax collectors as unredeemable. They could not come back. They were not allowed uh, around the temple. Remember the tax collector, the Pharisee, who stands and boasts? It says the tax collector stands far off. He was not welcome. You could not come back into the covenant community of God. They were outcasts, utter disgraces to their family. And this is the man Jesus calls. Sitting in a tax booth. He is no theoretical sinner. He has a real name. 
we, uh, I think a lot of times we tend to whitewash the stories of the Bible. Like the, they're easy to love, like the, the woman at the well, a serial adulterer who ruined families and wrecked people around her. Uh, yeah, we would love her. We'd be just like Jesus. We'd go to the well and we love her. But do you know someone like that? Do you, do you know a person like that? It's a real person. Jesus really loved this man, but the purpose of this scene goes even further. Further than Levi, for every other sinner that came in the crowd that day, Jesus is displaying what you may intellectually know as true. Jesus loves sinners. Even think of this. Uh, because there were probably plenty in the crowd that um, wouldn't have known Levi. They might not have known his background. They said people were coming from all kinds of other villages. So if Jesus had just touched him in the middle of the crowd, lots of people wouldn't have actually understood the gravity of it. But Jesus purposefully calls him, he's sitting in the tax booth like a neon sign was over his head. Worst sinner you could possibly think of. And Jesus calls him and he walks out. That's who Jesus calls. This is grace. This is what unmerited favor means. So Jesus calls unworthy, corrupted, morally bankrupt sinners to follow him. The Pharisees, they had crafted a God in their own mind who would not call this kind of sinner. An idol in their own mind. Let God's revelation of who he is tell you who he is. And let your heart rejoice in that. There is sufficient grace for the worst of sinners. How do I know? Because Jesus did this on purpose. He's displaying, he calls the worst of sinners to himself. Second, the call to follow Jesus does not minimize sin. Verse 30, this is the real accusation of the Pharisees and the scribes. They say, they, they grumbled at the disciples and say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? What they are saying is, your friendship and frolicking with these sinners is condoning and granting approval to their actions. It's minimizing sin. He's dismissing the seriousness of the sin of these guys. That's what he's doing. That's their, that's their main charge against Jesus. But is, it, is that true? I don't think so. If it was, there would be a few things we would not expect in, in this passage. So verse 31 and verse 32. Jesus answers, those who are well have no, no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. How does Jesus describe tax collectors and sinners? He doesn't defend them. He doesn't say they're okay, they're doing all right. He doesn't sweep their sin. He calls them sick. No defense, everything is not okay. But then, I think 
more conclusively, verse 28, what does Levi, what, what does he respond in? And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. When Jesus calls Levi to follow him, he gets up and he leaves being a tax collector is what he does. Levi saw the Savior, heard his call to him, and saying yes to him meant walking away from his sinful life. He sets his money bag down, he takes off his uh, badge, his tax collecting badge, to follow Jesus. I find this a little, this detail a little odd because Jesus' call is very simple. He, he just says, follow me. He doesn't say, before you come, I need you to forsake tax collecting, forsake your sin. But he does. So I don't have a great answer of how Levi knows this. But look at how when Jesus restates his call in verse 32, he rephrases it. With different words, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to, you think he'd say, follow me. Sinners to repentance. Jesus' call means a turning from sin. Faith and repentance. His very call is a sin-forsaking call. Remember the young rich man. Very similar to this story. The young rich man who comes, and Jesus made a similar call. Give up your love of money and follow me. And the young rich man won't give up his money. Jesus says, well, we all, that, that's fine. I was just kind of, that was an option. Come on anyways. Jesus stiff-arms him. He says, No. Following me means leaving the tax booth, leaving your sin. And he would have done the same thing to Matthew. If you are sitting in a tax booth, metaphorically, living in sin, pursuing desires contrary to Christ and holding them, it is a false gospel to say you can hold this sin close and follow Christ. Genuine faith means repentance. The call to Christ does not minimize sin. But I I love, this jumped out at me, Uh, this story, there's a perfect visualization of what it means to turn and follow. Faith and repentance. Look at verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Before Levi met Christ, um, he was willing to abuse his neighbors. The love of money caused him to spurn his neighbor, to hate those around him. But the old is passing away and new has come. Now he uses his money to love his neighbors, to worship Christ, to bless those around him. This is our Savior, one who saves us from our sin. So the call to follow Jesus does not 
minimize sin. Number three, from this passage, grace is contagious and attractive. We, We read that Jesus extends grace to one tax collector, and he loved him, even though he was as bad as you could be. The next day, verse 29, what we just read, did you see who was at the party the next day? Throws, Levi throws a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors. You know this, that, that it's true, that grace is attractive. There are people, uh, I hope in your life, that I, know, that I know who take sin very seriously, holiness, and yet their, their lips, their, their life, their uh, graceful people. And you want to be around them, don't you? They, they draw you to them. I want my wife to be around those kind of people. I want to be around those kind of people. I want to be more like those people. So one sinner, all of a sudden we have lots of the same kinds of sinner being drawn in. For those who have burnt bridges, um, wasted their lives, who've gone beyond hope, grace is good news. It is really good news. It's like water in a desert. It's like a ladder out of a hole. The Pharisees had nothing to offer these. Remember, they're unredeemable. There is no way back. And when these tax collectors saw Matthew and Jesus' interaction with him, they saw forgiveness. They saw uh, he was in. He had been welcomed. And so in Mark's gospel, it says, uh, in the same parallel passage, it says, and there were many after they had this party, it says there were many that followed him. The gospel of grace is attractive. It is contagious. But see, see Levi's part in this. Levi is the one who makes the feast. Levi wants what he has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He wants those who were in the exact same place he was yesterday. He wants them to know the Jesus that called him. He sent out the group text. The only parties that tax collectors were invited to were other tax collector parties. They did not go, go any, uh, invited anywhere else. So Christian, do not be ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Invite them to your house. Share the grace you have experienced. It's contagious and attractive. Number four, this is my favorite point, I think. Christ goes toward sinners. Christ goes toward sinners. This point's a little tricky, but in the Pharisee and scribe's question in verse 30 again, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? Um... Mentioned before that they believed Jesus was condoning and approving their sin. But why? What is it about what Jesus is doing 
that is condoning and approving their sin. I don't really think they're concerned with any interaction with sinners. I think they'd be fine with uh, lecturing them, hurling insults toward them, pointing out their faults. It's the closeness that they have a problem with. The intimacy with which Jesus engages the Pharisees and uh, the tax collectors. Verse 29. There's a great feast that Jesus is at. He is reclining at table with them. They're eating the same meal together. They're talking. He comes close. The Pharisees and scribes say, this is not the way that you establish what righteousness is and what sin is. Jesus is blurring the lines by his closeness. There's a You need to keep a healthy arm's distance, self-righteous distance away from sinners to keep that line clear. They're so sure this this kind of way is right. Uh, Remember when a woman with a really bad reputation comes to Jesus, she washes his feet. They say that he must not know what kind of woman this is or he wouldn't let her touch him. He wouldn't let her be this close. But we know the truth. Jesus knows the very depths of her soul, of yours, of this tax collector, better than anyone. And he comes close. He is intimate with sinners. He comes to them. He doesn't wait for them to come to him came to seek and to save those that were lost. This is the gospel. Christ came to us while we were yet sinners. The initiator of salvation is God. So, practical question from this. You, unlike Jesus are sinful. You are not holy like him. You are not spotless. As a fellow sinner, do you have more anger and hatred and disdain for sinners than Jesus did himself? When you are one with him, are you disgusted that you couldn't imagine having to spend prolonged periods of time really close to them? Can you be close to sinners? Or are you repulsed by them? Jesus endured such contradiction of sinners by coming close. Jesus ends uh, in the same encounter in Matthew with an Old Testament quote that says, I desire mercy not sacrifice. He rebukes the Pharisees with this. I I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I think to sum that up, your religion, it's the sacrifice part, without love, mercy, closeness for sinners, it's worthless. All the wisdom and knowledge of who God is, 
you are accumulating and knowing? Are you using it for mercy? Paul would say, if not, it's just puffing you up. But love builds up. Rather, Jesus' response to their question, verse 31 and 32, so they say, why, do you, why are you so close? Why are you getting so close with him? His response is, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What I, what I hear in that, he seems to be implying that this eating and drinking and closeness is the very means by which he is bringing healing and restoration. That is how he is coming to the sinners. This is your Savior. Very practical first step uh, application I, I see from the text. Jesus eats and drinks with them. Having, having a meal together has transcended culture and time as a way to know people, to be close, to get beyond just surface conversation, to offer friendship and relationship. So do you have a kitchen table? Are you planning to eat this week? Our Lord... Call him Lord. He said, when you have a feast, don't invite over the same friends every time. Who will just pay you back the next time. You'll just go to their house the next time. He said, when you have a feast, open up your doors to someone who will not be able to pay you back. Because this is who Christ was to you welcomed you to his table. When you didn't deserve it, when you had nothing to offer him, this is the gospel. Follow your Lord in this. Redeem your Sunday afternoon or your Friday nights. Redeem your kitchen as a place to be close, as a place to offer friendship to those who don't have it. While we were yet sinners, Christ came toward us. Lastly, um, well, I'm going to have this in my notes. Uh, No, I'm not going to say it. Don't go off script. I'll say something heretical. Last, sinners are sick, and Jesus is a doctor. When pressed that that Jesus is doing it's all wrong, Jesus bases it on two things. The condition of sinners, what they are really like, and why he came. Look at verse 31. His answer to them, why, why is he doing this? Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not not come to call the righteous, but sinners 
to repentance. I'm going to come back to this. I'm going to say the other thing I was thinking about. Do you think it's right that that the tax collectors were um, ostracized from the covenant community? That they weren't allowed in the temple? This is a question. Do you think they should have been allowed in the temple? Remember, Jesus doesn't minimize sin. Were, were the Pharisees and scribes and Jews right in keeping them out? Food for thought? Maybe, maybe do some, some searching of the scriptures yourself. I propose, yes, they were right in keeping them out. Do you remember uh, the passage about church discipline? How you are to treat someone who you've confronted in their sin, they won't turn, calling them, you are naming the name of Christ, but you won't give up your sin. Cast them out of the church and treat them as a tax collector. I see a, a confirming of that, that someone who uh, holds their sin and won't turn from it, Jesus still does not minimize it, but they're outside. They are not, they're not following Christ the way Christ calls people to follow him. But I, I hope maybe even that just changes the way you think about church discipline. Do we see how Jesus treats the tax collector? It's not like, kick them out, good riddance. We want restoration. We want them to turn, come and follow Christ. Don't Your sin is not worth holding on to. He calls you to let go and follow him. No, we totally lost where I was. Last, sinners are sick, and Jesus is a doctor. So, why was Jesus going about it this way? Because of their condition. Do you see how he describes the sinner in verse 31? Those are, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Being a sinner, he, he says it is like being sick. He doesn't describe Levi, Matthew, as unfortunate, a product of his external circumstances, or just a victim of his upbringing, or just maybe he just needs some encouragement. Sinners are not neutral, or uh, something that I, I think is we probably all hear a lot, that he's just someone who makes lots and lots and lots of really bad choices, but he has a good heart. Have you heard this before? Jesus does not describe us like that. He says it's like sickness, which should bring to mind how he describes the, the rotten tree, the rotten fruit, the evil decisions that keep coming out. It's not because they're not like watering the tree right. He just needs a different environment. It is coming from within. There is brokenness from within. That is their problem. Sickness from within. 
internal, not external, in need of a physician. Their need is for a doctor. It is for external help, not from inside. Jesus said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Paul would agree, I know that in me and in my flesh dwells no good thing. Help must come from outside from a healing doctor. And Jesus is also talking to the Pharisees. He has a target on them, I think, when he says, those who are well have no need of a physician. And he says again in a different way, I have not come to call the righteous. He, He describes the Pharisees and scribes as well and righteous, but not because they have seen the doctor. This is a self-righteousness that they see with their own eyes. It is false, but it, it highlights that it is from within that they think they are good. It's their own doing, their superior wisdom, better life choices, has all originated within them. It has not been given, it has not been brought from the outside from a healing, saving doctor. It is from within. And here this morning in our passage, verse 32, I have not come for them. If you cling to your own goodness... There is good that comes just, just a good tree, just wells up within me. I just, I've got it. Jesus resists the proud. He says, I did not come for you. But if you own your sickness, your depravity, he says, I am a doctor for that kind of sinner. Bring healing, I bring restoration. Came for you. Uh, I want to end with just a conversation that I had with a man. We talked a lot of like Christian language. He would every once in a while he would kind of admit that he hadn't been perfect. He kind of messed up here or there, but immediately would uh, back up, would defend himself would assert where he had done right, that he was okay on his own. So I, uh, all I was trying to get at, I think I had this, this passage was on my mind. I kept saying, if one, if you can be good enough for God to accept you, why did Christ die? This is like evangelism. Lots of, there are lots of Christians that will say they're Christians. But when you ask them, why does God accept you? A lot of times you'll hear that answer. I'm, I'm a pretty decent person. Ask them, then why did Jesus have to be crucified? What did his death accomplish? Why did he need to come and die? He was crucified under the wrath of God. 
But that makes no sense. You can be good enough that God would accept you. you. It's a very gospel in itself. itself. Coming of Christ would condemn you. Christ calls you to follow him by coming under his refuge from the judgment of sin. He was made to be sin, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But then two, uh, what I had said a minute ago, as long as you keep looking inward to establish your goodness and righteousness before God, Jesus didn't come for you. You can't name Christ if it's your own doing. He only came for the sick. He only came for the sick. But if that is good news again this morning. You know your sickness. You know your depravity. You know there's nothing good in me. Jesus says, I came for you. I welcome this kind of sinner. So, as we close, again, you have the story in your lap this morning. It is a revelation of who God is. It's purposeful, intentional, we are all the same. We're, we're all made of the same stuff. I read uh, William Carey's famous, people call him like the father of modern missions. Amazing man. And on his tombstone, it said, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. Even the best men and women know that their only hope is a merciful God. Their only refuge is that Jesus would be a friend of a sinner like me. So, own that. Uh, We should be reciting this regularly. Keep on saying that you're a sinner. Let me read you Matthew's list of of disciples in his gospel. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, Boasting in Christ that I, I am one of the disciples. I am one of his. But it is not because of me. I want you to be reminded I am unworthy. I was a tax collector. I was as sinful as you could imagine. And yet my name gets to be here. So keep confessing who you really are in Christ. then let's follow him. Let's follow Christ in how we love mercy and pursue the the people around us. God, I hope you put someone on your mind. When we talked about how Jesus gets close with sinners, I hope God put someone on your mind that you could bring 
close. That you can model Christ in opening up your dinner plans, offering friendship and love more than surface level, but meaningful relationships. Rest, rest in the free grace of Christ again this morning, Savior who loved sinners. passage. Thank you for preserving it for us, for uh, coming to seek and to save us. When we, like Adam and Eve, were hiding, we were dreading you, sitting in our tax booth, loving our sin, no hope without God. You initiated reconciliation. You offered us hope, forgiveness, mercy, unmerited favor. Forgive us where we are more like the Pharisees at times. We like sacrifice and religion without mercy. Building up of our own wisdom think we know. Make us more like your son. Help us to follow in your footsteps. Give us courage and boldness to reach out to people this week who you brought to our minds. May the gospel be uh, contagious and attractive workplaces this week, as we seek spirit, we pray all these things in Jesus' name.